Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. I'm more afraid of the living than the dead. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Evil mind, evil sword. I am Harry Mackin. You can find me at Stocky Harry. Uh, just again, forgot the bit, but you can find me, I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB, please. And today we're going to be speaking about the 1966 film Sword of Doom. Aaron, you want to tell us what it's about? Indeed, Sword of Doom, 1966, directed by Kihachi Akamoto. Uh, the film tells the story of a, uh, samurai named Rainosuke, uh, Tsuke, played by Tatsuya Nakadai. Uh, whose deranged nature, lack of emotion, and penchant for violence startles everyone around him. Ryanosuke forces another swordsman white, uh, swordsman's wife to sleep with him in exchange for agreeing to lose during an upcoming uh, proposed non-lethal sword duel. Um, however, he ends up killing the other swordsman during the duel after his opponent makes an illegal thrust at him in anger uh, for what he did to his wife. Two years later, uh, Ryanosuke lives with Ohama, uh, played by Michio uh, Aratama, who is the wife of the woman or the wife of the man that he had previously killed. And he works for the Shinsengumi, which is a, a band of Ronin that uh, kind of semi-officially work for the government doing assassinations and murders and things of that nature. Uh, Ryanosuke learns that the brother of the man he killed previously, Hyoma Utsuki, played by Yuzo Kayama, uh, seeks vengeance for the death of his brother by training with the legendary swordsman Shimada uh, Toranosuke, uh, played by Toshiro Maifune. Sorry for the massive mispronunciations here. Uh, Sword of Doom is based on a serialized novel uh, that the English translation is Great Buddha Pass or something similar to that. Uh, it's by author Kaizen uh, Nakazato. Um, it is a extremely long-running novel uh, that was serialized, ran in newspapers originally, um, 41 volumes were published before the author died in 1944, um, and even though it was not completed, uh, it is one of, if not maybe, the longest novels ever written, although you kind of have to stretch the meaning of the term novel. Uh, overall, Sword of Doom is incredibly dark and violent and is generally best known for its incredibly uh, villainous protagonist, as well as its uh, surprising and dark ending. That it is. Thank you very much. Good summary, Aaron. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Anybody else want to tell Aaron that he did a good job? Cody, and- Aaron, Aaron, uh, uh, that was a that was a pretty good summary uh, for a movie that is very difficult to summarize. Um, so give uh, you hard that. to do, yes. And we would trust nobody but you to do it. Um, I take from this movie that I I really enjoyed it. I uh, I don't 
think it's anywhere near perfect, but I really, in examining its flaws and finding out what I liked and didn't like about it, I think that sort of in a weird way made me kind of like it more that I was sort of wrapping my head around it. I think we'll find out through our discussion. Uh, it's beautiful. It's got this kind of weird heightened sense of reality. Um, I'm really just reading my bullet points so that we have something to talk about later, but, uh, the plot kind of flits in and out of focus. We just talked uh, before we went on mic about how a lot of the second act is just kind of fairy dust. It just like is, I won't say it completely inconsequential, but it can be completely glossed over in summaries. Um, I, I obviously love Tatsuya Nakadai in this role. Uh, his, I've never noticed how big, like fucking big his eyes are <laughs> until this role. Very big. Also his voice very deep like way deeper than he's put it in any other other films I've ever seen him in. Uh, He looks like a goat being led to slaughter, like all of the time, no matter (laughs) what his emotion is supposed to be. He's got those like anime uh, paranoid eyes. Like the villain has just told him that he's seen his every move and he has no idea what to do with that. Um, It's like the movie is just such a, I think it's a smooth like escalation of violence until the very, very end when it's like a huge plateau. Uh, It's a slow burn until it's not. Uh, There's no real, climax except the very end it's just a crescendo and even the ending like aaron was just saying surprisingly dark ending uh sort of we can talk about how it's an ambiguous ending uh that to the to me sort of like points at this is not a movie about resolution or climax or confrontation it's just about the constant escalation and and crescendo of violence uh that's my few notes cody good notes jason um so i first watched the sort of doom two summers ago uh, and since then i picked up it's Criterion release, and that Blu-ray was how I rewatched this last night. Um, I remember it making a big impression on me at the time because of how fucking beautiful it is. Um, that really hasn't changed uh, for me. The spaces these characters occupy feel very conscious and intentional, and this time around, I feel like I probably ended up latching onto different spaces than I did previously just because everything is so visually dense. Um, as Jason alluded to, and hopefully we'll a lot some time later to talk about uh, Tatsuya Nakadai. Between my first and second viewings of The Sword of Doom, I've been able to see Nakadai in some other films, including Harakiri, which has been one of my best and favorite quarantine watches uh, up to this point. Uh, it fucking rules. Um, and these other viewings have helped provide context for that sort of wide-eyed, unnerving stoicism that he can seemingly turn on and off on a whim. Uh, he's so good in this, um, and we're going to say it a bunch probably, but like the story of a man who has been twisted by evil, who is arguably the main character of the movie and who we see gradually spiral out of control doesn't work without the right performance. And I feel like Nakadai gave the right performance. Um, Mentioning quickly a few things that landed different for me this time around, uh, the first of which being the use of women in this story. Um, It's hard to tell a story of a sociopath in a way that allows them to have like a positively meaningful relationship with woman, uh, women or any woman period. Uh, Ryanosuke scenes with um, Hama, Ohama um, are tough to watch. Um, And with this viewing, I began to maybe better understand what those scenes could do for this story. Like, um, like, yes, they are successful in helping to illustrate the evil residing within this man, but also I feel like there are maybe different, better ways to communicate that, that same idea. Um, I, maybe we feel differently about that. Um, The other thing I noticed this time was that, and we were talking about it off mic a little bit, but this movie is more plot heavy than I remember it being. The C plot with Omatsu and her guardian uh, Shichibe was something I completely forgot about. Um, the what maybe can be referred not, to not the, without reason, right? Sorry, I right. didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, you're good, and you're correct. Um, and the what is I guess the B plot was a little more memorable because it involved fucking Toshiro Meifune. Um, 
hero of the pod. Uh, but the ways in which the A, B, and C stories all wove into each other was something I did not take with me after my first watch. Um, and I kind of had to re-remind myself of that as the movie showed it to me again. There were times when it felt like the movie was stopped dead while trying to flesh out exactly what those threads were. Um, though it's possible I was just being impatient. Um, I'm thinking mainly about the middle act, which dragged a little um, for me anyway. And because I knew how wild the finale was going to be. And I was just like sitting on the edge of my seat waiting for that to happen. Um, so anyway, that's kind of where I'm at. All things considered, I feel like I'm probably at a similar spot as I was after watching this movie for the first time. Though, uh, of course, I'm always happy to leave room for any ways uh, in which the fellas might sway me. Yeah, I'm really glad that you guys both went before I did because I thought I was going to have to be a defender of this movie, but it actually sounds like uh, Jason and I came down very similarly and Cody and I uh, maybe have more in common about it than we thought. Um, This probably won't be surprising for people who know me. Uh, I'm like a real sucker for Jedageki movies. Um, I think this movie absolutely kicks ass. Um, I think it's a ridiculous mess that is sometimes like accidentally hilarious in ways that it is maybe not going for. But I love a big movie. I kind of love a big pretentious movie even. Um, I think that this is a movie that is so earnest and uh, interested in being self-serious in a way that I really appreciate, actually. Um, It was a movie where my rudimentary understanding of Japanese history actually really came into play and informed my reading of the movie in some really interesting ways that uh, we can talk about. Um, And it... I don't think that its critiques are particularly um, incisive uh, or particularly uh, nuanced necessarily, but sometimes you don't need to be nuanced to be cutting. And I think that this is uh, to sort of like extend the cutting metaphor. I think that this is a very cutting um, critique of Japanese feudalism and of the sort of philosophies underlying it. Um, and I think that it extends those philosophies to their logical conclusion. I think this is a movie about the end of things in a lot of ways and in what the end of things makes apparent. Um, and I'm interested in that. And I think that their decision to make this story about the people who it's about, including especially the main character, um, Ryanosuke, who is literally a psychopath, um, like no bones about it. Um, I think that's a really bold and really fascinating choice. This is like very much a 1966 retrospective sort of reevaluation of um, of samurai culture and of even Jedagekis. It's almost a critique of the romanticization of those things. Um, this movie doesn't exist without um, Kurosawa's movies uh, that it sort of built the framework for it. Um, I think we, we see, I basically, I think this is a very canny movie and I think that, that it's self-seriousness belies a lot of how actually in conversation and actually, um, canny it is in terms of what it's attempting. I mean, like there's basically stunt casting in this movie, right? Like, like they're leveraging Toshiro Meifune as Toshiro Meifune and even Tetsuya Nakadai as Tetsuya Nakadai. Like, those are those are people who are known commodities at this point. This movie came out a year after fucking um, Redbeard, right? And so, like, it's really fascinating to me to be able to see a movie after we had our Kurosawa education that is so interested in continuing those conversations about that time period and about Japanese culture in general in this way and just doing it in such a overly stylized 
fantastical way. Like Jason said, I really dig the heightened reality of this movie. And um, I'm a huge sucker for a great ending. And I think that this movie has a fantastic ending. Um, and so I'm sort of surprised, right? Because I think that that when Aaron and I watched this movie very late last night, um, both of us were a little bit maybe confused uh, and maybe a little bit taken back by how messy this movie can be. Um, like you said, Cody, uh, the second act of this movie is almost throwaway in some very weird ways. This movie moves through history the way that something like uh, Battles Without Honor or Humanity moves through history, where it's just like it's making these shorthand swipes that you don't Damn. really yeah. keep up with. Uh, and that's very interesting. Um, and maybe not, maybe we're not the right audience for it necessarily. And somebody with more Japanese background would be better suited for it. But you get this sort of like, maybe because of that dislocation from history, you get this very emotive sense from this movie where it's just like, you're supposed to be taking the emotions in maybe more than the actual events. And, uh, all of that worked for me. So, um, that was kind of long winded, but basically I think I ended up really liking this movie and really thinking that it worked for me, even when it was extremely uncomfortable and extremely sort of gross. Um, even in its depiction of women, which will be interesting to talk about, I suppose. Um, but I'm interested in what Aaron thought. Yeah, um, I, th I think I'll keep – I really want to touch on a lot of the things that, that you guys already mentioned so far. So I'll try and keep mine a little briefer, I think. I, I'll generally say that I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I am someone who often en enjoys uh, the the messiness of movies like this. I think this movie is messy in really interesting ways that we'll, we'll probably touch on. Um, I think that my overall impression is that this film – I think maybe more than almost any other I've seen um, causes the viewer, especially a viewer that, you know, is going to talk about it on a podcast uh, to really struggle with um, how they view the intent of this film versus what the film is doing completely detached from its source material and its production. Uh, this is a film that is uh, an adaptation of a very, very long running uh, serialized novel, as I mentioned before, and it was the first in a, a planned series of movies and the, the rest of the movies never really got made. I, I tried Googling around. I read some articles on the film. I cannot really figure out why they weren't made. Um, probably just something to do with money. Uh, but nevertheless, I think that there is kind of two readings of this film that you can go to. One that is purely practical as this is a, a first in a series of films and that you can certainly read um, a lot of the plot elements that don't go anywhere uh, or the ending that's very abrupt. I think you can read that in one manner if you were to view this as the, the beginning of a, a planned serialized um you know, kind of string of films. I think there's another reading this film on the other end of the spectrum that views a lot of those kind of tossed aside plot moments and the abruptness of the ending and, and a lot of the character stuff as this kind of weird subversive uh, commentary on samurai films and samurais in general in this period in time. Um, I think I kind of end up somewhere in the middle, which is maybe a, an interesting place to be because I do think those views are Centrist. kind of... Well, they're kind of at, at odds with each other, right? Um, I, they, they feel somewhat incompatible, but this movie, I think, does a pretty good job at, at threading that needle. Uh, I think this is also a film that, that is also, uh, it's, it's very clear that the kind of, um, I don't know, Ouroboros-like cycle of, of Westerns and samurai films uh, being inspired by each other and then inspiring each other in turn and that kind of 
endless cycle of, of kind of feeding and, and being inspired by each other. I think that's very on display here. Um, this is a movie that feels more inspirational that, that maybe it actually is. I tried to put this film into context. I know that, um, you know, it was a popular film when it came out, uh, the series of books or the, the novel was popular as well for Japanese audiences. Um, I don't know how inspired, you know, there was a 2005 criterion release of this and, and maybe it's kind of started getting picked up in popularity since then. But I, I really struggle because this movie feels, especially the main character. Uh, I, I think that uh, Nakadai's performance feels like something that if not directly inspired so many kind of uh, uh, very detached, dark characters, then if it didn't inspire those characters, then it, they at least share the same roots. And so I, I struggle as like a, a, an American viewer who doesn't have a lot of this context with where to put this uh, film kind of mentally in my mind. Uh, but I guess that's stuff that I wanted to dig into. So I, I but I liked this movie, I guess it was a nice little bow at the end. Nice. Yeah. I really like what you said about, even though I was making fun of you about um, the, the tension at the heart of this movie between like intent and uh, um, accomplishments and between sort of like, what you had said about the tension between like uh, what you think it might be setting out to do and, and how you can read it as a result of those things. Um, I, w- I would just like to add that like, this is a really interesting movie to read in the, um, the legacy of Kurosawa because Kurosawa's movies are almost the opposite of that. Where like, in my opinion, Kurosawa is at such oneness with the intent and accomplishments of his movies that they're such masterworks that there is no, like there's very seldom tension there in my mind. And that maybe be is contributing to this weirdness that we're talking about. We're like, I think that this is a movie unlike all of Kurosawa's movies, maybe where the, the ambition really outstrips the ability in some ways. Like, I don't think that this is a fully successful movie. Uh, and we can maybe argue about why that is. If it's like, if it's balancing too many different motivations, if there was a, a money question, like you had said, Aaron, where this was a proposed series, um, or if, if they were sort of like, like had multiple allegiances as the, the film went on, as it seems to be, but like, this is a, this is a movie that isn't totally accomplishing. I don't think what it's trying to do, but I really like what it's going for. And I really like the, like, um, I don't, there's something, this is, this is a really weird comparison. Um, but there's something that kind of punk about the, the distance between what you're trying to do and your capability of saying it. I keep thinking about that 20th century women quote about how, like, the thing that's interesting about punk is the fact that these people have these emotions and they don't have the ability to express it. That's kind of what I feel about this movie where it's just like, like you see these big, operatic scenes and it's like man the movie i don't know if it really earned this but holy shit am i feeling it right it's and it's like there's something really redemptive about that um and about the this idea i don't know uh that like i don't know if i'm actually all the way there with you but damn i see that you're there and i'm i'm glad for you um or to use another example while i'm throwing out references left and right like i kind of feel that way about like seijin suzuki movies a little bit um i just watched branded for kill the other day and like there are parts of branded for to kill that like completely lost me except that i was like bouncing up and down in my chair right and that's kind of how i felt about this too where it's like okay i have to squint a little bit to get where you're going but i really like that you think you're there uh and i want to be there with you and that's almost enough 
Do, do you think that the film, especially in comparison to something like Kurosawa, I mean, we, we talked about uh, a long time ago at this point, we talked about, you know, Seven Samurai and uh, Yojimbo and kind of the the view that Kurosawa had, the, the criticisms that he had for what happens when a, a, a power structure is kind of suddenly absent and what happens when you have uh, this kind of heightened class of people who are, are kind of thrust back into society without the structure to support them. Um those films always seemed very political on the surface. This this film kind of seems to me, and I'm certainly not as knowledgeable about this as some other people on the pod, but like this to me with the elements of of uh, Rhino Suke, uh, especially the the gang of like Ronin that he joins, the the Shinsengumi, which is a yeah, we should talk semi political organization, and not to like take this in like completely different places, but that this this film seems political it part it maybe seems like that the, the politics of this movie that this criticism of not necessarily this power vacuum in the same way that uh kurosawa was was kind of looking at it but it seems like it's much more directly critical of those structures yes. um i'm not sure though specifically for for you harry because you brought it up do you think that this movie deals with that subject matter it feels like to me and maybe this is just who i am and my lack of knowledge but it feels like a lot of that is very subtle or like purely context-based where in kurosawa it seemed like it was a bit more upfront about that am i am i wrong there or so i think the thing is it's the and i'm sorry i'm I'm talking so much uh guys but the the thing about it is that like i think that it's it's um using Kurosawa's more nuanced and more um, maybe insightful or at least um, level-headed criticisms and critiques of the samurai culture as a foundation and springboard and is like maybe almost going um, too far where like it seems that this is a, a movie critiquing something that is already established as evil right like I think it takes it as a given that samurai culture is evil in a way that Kurosawa was interested in exposing um, and that's why I said that it's sort of built out of that legacy but it is really interesting to talk about how like uh, the Shinsengume uh, which I didn't know was the Shinsengumi until almost the end of the movie because it was localized as the Shinsen group uh in yeah. the, the yeah um, yeah sounding like a fun fantasy title, villain yeah which which is funny because like i i should have picked up on that especially because like they're literally wearing the shinsengumi um outfits although this is a black and white movie um the shinsengumi by the way they wore um like robin's egg blue uh robes with those like white triangles on the bottom it's super mm. distinctive um a thing to know about them is that they are like pretty romanticized in my opinion in uh, Japanese culture almost to this day, um, they were like basically, a, they were called a secret police basically, but really they were more like, like assassins and like personal sort of um, gang members for the shogunate um, during the Bakamatsu and during the Boshin war. Um, they were established to defend uh, and consolidate shogunate power within major cities like Kyoto after the um, opening of the borders and the introduction of foreign trade. Um, So they were a reactionary group that was trying to protect um, feudal Japanese power struggles. This movie is suggesting that actually like the Shinsengumi were almost apolitical because they were simply murderers, right? Like they were simply people who lived and died by the sword and who were trying to protect their culture. And so like, they're very much in this movie, like almost a civil war lost cause type analog where it's just like, these people don't give a shit about 
feudal Japan, except that it allows them to continue to have their culture where people like Ryanosuke can just straight up murder a dude for absolutely no given reason, as he does in the first scene of this movie. And so, like, I, you're not wrong, Aaron. This is like a less political movie uh, openly because it's less subtle, right? Like, it's not actually as interested in making reasoned critiques because it's more interested in being sledgehammer-like and being like, no, actually, you don't understand. The, the types of guys who were in the Shinsengumi, this sort of like romanticized lost cause samurai culture of justice and Bushido that you're familiar with, they were actually just psychopaths who loved to kill people and had the sword of doom, right? Like this movie's critique of, of the politics of um, Japan is saying that people like Ryunosuke were uh, the Shinsengumi. Like, I think that this movie's critique is ultimately saying that Ryunosuke, as he's portrayed in this, is the logical end point of samurai. He is a samurai. Like, he is what yeah. we think of when we think of samurai. And what is he? Oh, he's a an absolute, literal psychopath, insane person, who at the end of this movie kills all of his allies for no reason except that he's out of his mind. <laughs> Yeah, I, I that kind of helps me frame some of this. I, I definitely read uh, Ryanosuke as a. Uh, I kind of viewed him as is despite the the fact that he is the a member of this kind of uh, band of assassins. I, I think the way that they view him kind of separates him a bit. Yes. I couldn't I couldn't decide if that was the movie critiquing him even further or maybe not critiquing the Shinsen Gumi enough. Uh, right, because yeah. it feels like everybody in that that crew basically views him as like this guy is even more fucked up. Like, at least yeah. we're doing this for a job. We're doing this for practical reasons. This dude kind of gets off on it, right? Uh, like this is he's yeah. interested in, in this for personal reasons, and the money or the politics are are kind of not even uh, a consideration for him. Well, and, and also like the, this is further complicated in Toshiro Mefune's character, who is like a really romanticized samurai figure, right? And so like that, there's something interesting and weird about that. Um, I think the movie kind of squares that. I uh, We can talk about that, but that is to say that, yes, like, like, Ryonosuke is an outsider. I think the fact that he's the greatest swordsman is sort of the movies making this clearer where it's just like, no, like those people are deluding themselves. Right. Like, I think that this movie portrays the Shinsengumi as deluded. Like what they actually are is a group of essentially opportunist, um, Yakuza like, um, bullies. And that's what their the source of their infighting is, is that they're all actually just looking to consolidate power and be as um, powerful as they can be while they have the opportunity to do so. And in that way, Ryosuke is almost um, purer because at least he doesn't have the pretense that he's actually doing something for a purpose. Um, but you're right in that, like, he is an outsider and that outsider status is something that's worth talking about. Sure. Yeah, there's there's a lot obviously under there that's like umbrellaed by uh, some of our discussion. I, I really liked where we were headed with um, discussions of like when I was going to this movie, like it or not knowing that uh, Tashir Mufune and Tatsuya Nakadai are both in this movie, you know, having seen them both in uh, Akira Kurosawa films prior to this, I sort of had expectations. I sort of had, uh, you know, a, a vocabulary that I was almost expecting, even knowing that it wasn't a Kurosawa film. Uh, what, I guess we touched on it a little bit, but maybe we can just as a, as a basis here, 
those comparisons to Kurosawa films, how would you compare them? What did you like? How did your familiarity with, with Kurosawa change how you saw these, this movie? Uh, I know Cody was looking for a lot of the same things um, the second time around that we must've been, you know, looking for the first time around. So I don't know, maybe is there anything to like, did that change your perception of the movie? Did that change your opinion of it or like what we were looking for? Um, not, not necessarily. Um, and I, I guess like my, my contextualization of Toshiro Mifune is like limited and, and maybe we're all sort of on the, like in the same boat here, but like in, in works of Kurosawa, they're very Mifune centered. Um, if he's not like the, like absolute 100% unproblematic hero. Well, I guess come to think of it, that's not really the case, but he's like the person we gravitate toward. He's rarely on like the side of opposition, if that makes sense. Maybe, and maybe I'm forgetting something like really obvious, um, but like sort of doom um, when I watched this, you know, a couple years ago was, I think probably my first glimpse at him, not, and, and it's sort of like a half step removed, right? Where we get a sense of, his ideology and his sort of representation of like, this is how, I mean, (laughs) this is how movie audiences in contemporary times see samurai. They imagine this guy and he has an entire like filmography to back that up. Um, One movie I saw that like removes him even further from that is I believe it was, it was an American production um, red sun that uh, Tashiro Mifune was in along with uh, Alain Delon and someone else that I'm forgetting and feel really fucking casting man. Holy shit. It's uh, oh yeah. Some, some American guy who's, who's not great, but in any case, like the the movie itself is it's worth visiting if not to like kind of uh, map out, you know, our, our mapping and understanding of not just Mifune, but the rest of that cast and how like he's, it adds sort of like a different dimension and, and flavor to like, is Mifune the guy that we're gravitated towards? Is he the quote unquote good guy? Is he the the bad guy? So I think the fact that sort of doom paints him as sort of the opposition. And meanwhile, the for all intents and purposes, protagonist of this movie is the psychopath Ryunosuke. Like it, it doesn't like shake up existing uh, like context for Mifune's filmography than it could have if like Mifune was just like the bad guy. Does that make mm-hmm. any sense? Yeah, it, it does. Like there's a lot in this movie. The reason I bring it up is because it struck me like both visually and as like, I really liked that uh, both Aaron and Harry and then you Cody were pulling at like the sort of storytelling and what type of like message is trying to be brought through. Um, and that's like, you know, almost immediately divergent when it comes to how messy this movie can be. We've all used that term, but specifically when I was watching this movie, I, you know, again, just subconsciously had that almost expectation that like vocabulary in my head of this is what sort of GDK films look like and, you know, how they act when they're done well, it looks like this. Uh, and it was, it was around, it was in the, definitely in the first act, but there was a part, I'm forgetting exactly what happens. But there's a part where there's like sped up camera work where there's a clear like yeah. kind of Buster Keaton effect. And I was like, yeah, that that's not something that I would see in a 
in a Kurosawa film. And then there are like these uh, sort of rotating panning shots that happen that are like, okay, so the visual, exactly what is being beamed into my eyes is something distinctly not Kurosawa. And then that put me on edge for what the movie was going to do otherwise, what it was going to do with its narrative, what it was going to do with its scripting and sort of what characters were going to be brought in. Obviously not all of that lands, but it just made it such a, like it ungrounded me almost immediately. It made me re-question why I, had, I was so married to this style that one person had set forth, you know, and sort of like codified. So that's like, that is what triggered that in my mind. And I was just, I guess, I mean, all of us had a similar experience with it, but in terms of your second viewing and having watched more Kurosawa in between, you know, 2019 and now I was curious about how that had, like, if that had rebuilt up any of those expectations, if it had like led to any surprises the second time around too. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I, I did the American slice of raw meat that I couldn't remember was Charles Bronson. Um, just wanted to <laughs> wait. Charles Bronson is in a film with, with, uh, Ellen Delon, Ursula Andress is in it too. She's notable. Oh, stuff. I, there's also a, a really good passage at the end of, uh, John, John Darnielle's, uh, second book, universal harvester about red sun near the, yeah, it's, it's good. I was going to bring up, uh, once upon a time in the West <laughs> eventually, which is also a Charles Bronson, uh, film but we can do that later. Just well, Hey, that sounds like a pivot point. You want, you want to talk about, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, I was just going to say it. It, uh, I, I didn't, I thought, I mean, I, I thought a little bit about Kurosawa films specifically because my Fune is in this. I, I definitely thought a lot more, maybe it's because Jason and I had watched once upon a time in the West earlier this year. Uh, but that film I think would be a very fascinating, uh, I don't know, double feature. Uh, with sort of doom, that's uh, a great idea. Both yeah. of them are are genres that are uh, kind of aged and evolved enough to kind of um, move past these kind of genre trappings that didn't always define the genre. Of course, like everybody always says, this old westerns and old samurai films and whatnot always had a degree of depth that they're often not uh, uh, seen as having. However, uh, I do think specifically once upon a time in the West is a mm-hmm. critique and a, a different take on Westerns as a whole. You know, the, the main villain in that movie is introduced at the very start of that film by killing an entire family, very notably killing a young child. Um, he wears all black. Uh, he seems to enjoy the killing and kind of the, uh, the violence, uh, inherent in his job. He's the villain of the film. Uh, so is uh, Nakadai and Sort of Doom, but Nakadai is also the protagonist. Protagonist, um, yeah. But, but nevertheless, I think that both of these films are kind of going even further and uh, seeing what happens when uh, a place such as the the West, the square quotes, scare quotes, Wild West, or uh, you know uh, this period in Japan with this power vacuum, what happens when these things kind of go to their inevitable conclusion? What is at the end of this railroad? Uh, who is the kind of ultimate culmination? of uh, violence and um, kind of the, the power that they wield. I, I think th- there's an interesting, it would be a very long uh, double feature. Uh, both these movies are pretty long, but be interesting. yeah, strap in for like four hours. Um, messy and messy in interesting ways. And a mess, all of these terms have been applied to this movie so far, just in this conversation, but how, like, how does that messiness I mean, I think it made me like it more. Like I said, it sort of eschewed sort of my perceptions and, and, conceptions of what the movie was going to be how did it make you think differently about those 
like whatever underlying message it's you think it might be trying to get at right like did it did it just th- turn everything on its head for a moment did it make you think oh this isn't actually executing what it's what it wanted to do it was it a complete non entity to you did it like not impact it at all well i'll i'll just add another question to that do we think that the messiness works for something thematic or do we does it does it chip away right. at what the we think the film was doing right like because that that is the thing that i keep having to that's, ask myself I guess yeah. i'll just yeah i'll just cheat and say i'm i'm totally willing maybe it's self-interest here but i'm totally willing to just say i think this film is doing interesting thematic things maybe it didn't like intend to i hate saying that about a movie right but like maybe all the the aspects of this film's production and source material and whatnot maybe if i think about it too much it might take away from some of that but i guess i just won't do that I don't know. Maybe that's cheating. It's so weird, right? Because it's both very broad and very specific. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I don't know if this was the intended direction for this question to go, but like the, the mess uh, as we've been calling it um, as much as it at times works and at, at times doesn't work it. I found myself um, the, during my first watch and this rewatch too. um, perhaps even more so i felt myself gravitating towards different things to try and get some sort of like to try and uh align myself or like get some sort of calibration as i went like i found myself paying more attention to uh Ryunosuke and the scenes he's in like when the b uh, and especially the c plots are sort of hap- happening and like as scattered as those details kind of like came across as as like weirdly assigned those scenes were like slotted in and and kind of edited into the movie i found myself paying it especially to Rinosuke's like physicality like Tatsunakadai yeah. as a physical being i found myself paying attention to a lot in this movie um two details specifically um that i thought were like really great um and like if not for any other reason or purpose they like made that character that much stronger for me as like a single entity um the first being like it's it feels common at least to me and like my noob brain with like movies that are very swordplay focused or or fencing i think as they called it um or like even kung fu movies like the describing of certain styles is just so lost on me and in part i'm sure that's my fault but it's also in some ways the movie just being like this is a catch-all for this thing um we don't expect this descriptor to mean a lot to you. I can't remember if they called this style anything particular by name, but they did at least set aside, like they, they described it enough. And then in a later scene, like they, they described it as something where like, this is a cruel style of fighting wherein you draw people in and like cruelly kill them. And then later they sort of, um, they, they, uh, Ryunosuke does this thing and it kind of helped my brain connect the two things together. But like he dips his sword, um, in, so like glad you're bringing this up uh, in the lead up to these duels as sort of like an invitation. You always see like they'll cut back to his opponent during the the spar or the duel. They'll sort of like inch closer or you'll see it on their face. They're like, am I supposed to go in further? Um, that was just like a really nice, strong detail to me. Um, and then the other detail that I found myself paying attention to and found myself really uh, liking a whole bunch was um, when he's uh, when Rinosuke is uh, in combat you know in opposition with somebody else he's looking at their feet um at least at the beginning he's not like doing the the alpha sort of move of making eye contact um (laughs) uh maybe there is uh like something um like thematically or 
like symbolically, maybe there is something to that. Um, but uh, I just like the idea of getting a better sense of your opponent from like how their feet move um, or even like how their like hips or shoulders move um, because the eyes can be deceiving or maybe, he, you know, not wanting to connect with with other people um, or something like that. Maybe that speaks volumes. But in, in any case, that was something I found myself paying attention to as a result of latching onto Tatsu Nakadai more and then just like, you know, maybe bookending those sorts of scenes with relative mess in comparison. Again, not knowing if that was the way we wanted this question to go. But that's how I feel myself kind of uh, responding to that. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up because where I was going to go next is basically to make like like book club questions to start to construct my sort of like like argument toward the idea of thematic consciousness in this movie uh, following off of Aaron's ideas. And to do that, I was just going to put together a bunch of like single like elements of this movie that I feel like work really well. One of them is definitely uh, Nakadai's um, or Ryanosuke's um, quote unquote silent style or silent form, yeah. right? Is that he, he's a unique practitioner of an unusual sword form that was taught to him by his father. Um, it's seen as cruel specifically because it, it's about drawing out your opponent and uh, ratcheting up tension until they make a mistake and then exploiting that mistake to, mur- to murder them by not showing your own sort of like emotions or, um, your own hand, so to speak, and and instead sort of like drawing them into this like almost feral feeling through your own like almost deferential aura. It's very interesting. The psychology of the duels in this movie are fascinating. Uh, and that makes it very interesting when he has his own sort of like um, mental break at the end of this movie. It's, it's as if um, all of the pain and all of the sort of like drawing out that he visited upon all of his enemies was at last coming home to roost at the end of this movie. Like the, the silence uh, that he was evoking came home to him at the end of this movie in a really fascinating way. Um, there are a bunch of other really interesting elements to him. Um, you mentioned Nakadai's physicality. It's important to note that he's kind of a loser, Ryanosuke. Um, he does not have a good relationship with this woman that he, uh, raped first of all, and then, um, wed because she didn't have anywhere else to go. He doesn't enjoy relationships with other people. He's seen as sort of freakish, um, and psychopathic. It's difficult for him to communicate. Um, Aaron, you brought up during our watch that he was like the original goth. And I said that he's yeah. like literally the the original ancient Japanese. While you were out partying, I studied the blade guy. I, I think <laughs> but, that I would I would even say that he is kind of like the original. Like I'll get to this in a minute, but he's kind of the original logic, facts, and reason nerd. Yes, yeah, he, he, but like very pointedly, right? Yes, that that I was going to say when you're you're talking about is his physical stance. Like for all the 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 messiness that is in this movie, and and there is some there. I think that it's it's not a lack of like characterization specifically yes. around him. The way that he is characterized ties so perfectly into his fighting style. Yep, uh, and that his fighting style is that he does not ever really act first himself, right? There, there are moments when he, he does during kind of a, a one or two of the larger duels when he will kill somebody. But when he is fighting somebody one-on-one, he is waiting for them to strike and then he takes advantage of that, right? And, Which and there's, I, nothing, there's nothing in him, right? Like he is the sword of doom, right? <laughs> like it's like they're fighting death instead of fighting a person. Well, they are in a way kind of fighting 
themselves and that they are yeah. the ones that are making mistakes that he uh, takes advantage of. This ties perfectly into his moral code. Like if you read the Wikipedia for this, or you read any of the, you read the Criterion uh, essay that went along with this, everybody talks about him being this kind of immoral figure. Um, the reality is that he does have a moral code. It is just extremely strict and very sociopathic. He never harms anybody in his view in a manner that what is what he views as unethical. The, the first thing that we see him doing is he kills an old man who is praying for death on a mountain, who is making maybe a slightly glib uh, kind of prayer about this is a perfect moment. Please let it in but now. he's asking for it. Yes, and he is asking for it, and he, he kills that old man. When he takes advantage and, and coerces uh, his uh, opponent's wife into sleeping with him to throw the match, he is simply responding in his mind what to a, a proposition that she made and taking it to its extremely logical, for him, conclusion, right? When his opponent thrusts at him uh, to try and get back at him during the match, he responds to that in his mind as he logically should. Um, and so the, the, his characterization is all about waiting for uh, slight slip-ups that his opponents make and then taking 100% advantage of it. Now, we as viewers know that that's not how ethics works. That's not how morality works. But that is his extremely compassionate way of viewing the world and the people around him. Okay, let's let's contrast that then with some of the other characters in the movie. Clearly, the like main contrast, yeah. and he's only, he's only brought in halfway through, is Toshiro Mifune's character, Shimada, I think, uh, who has, like, not only is he better than Ryunosuke, but he has an almost completely inverted ideology, as, as I read it, of, of like, yep. so, so Ryunosuke, I mean, not to just, like, fact state, I'm, I want this to be a discussion, but, like, Ryunosuke at the beginning sort of implies that um, the way of the sword is something that guides men, it guides their morality, it is a source of truth, it is from the sword floweth sort of the, the divine command, and obviously Shimada, in, like, direct quotes, says the exact opposite of that. Like Harry mentioned, uh, evil man, evil sword, or is it evil soul? I forget. Yeah. Um, Evil soul, uh, he, evil. Sa- he says the soul is the sword, whereas Ryanosuke would say the uh, the sword is the soul, right? Exactly. Like exactly it's, inverse. It's, it's it's that direct like inver- inversion of that ideology, and it's just like in that moment when he sees when they attack the palanquins, and um, you know, I'm not going to go down this road. We can we can make this a discussion. No, I let's see do it. So. Uh, I think I I think I just left my hand up, but I, I will say that. Uh, uh, the the director of this film, uh, Okamoto, was extremely critical of Bushido and, and Samurai Code uh, in his uh, in a lot of his films. Uh, this film, I you know, I think the main character is uh, that that Samurai Code kind of taken to its its darkest end. Um, I am kind of curious: Do we view Mifune's character as a a kind of positive contrast? Do we think the film is critical of him as well? I was kind of curious about this, especially with Mifune's kind of uh, you know reputation at that time as someone right. who played these characters a lot. Right. That was, I mean, purposeful. that was a that was another one of the thing that like it it spoke to me as something extremely purposeful, right? Like you don't cast Mifune in this unless you're doing something right like it's it's such stunt casting it's so it's so symbolism through actor um that like like Mifune is supposed to represent this this very like alternative right and it's supposed to be there there's a great irony here where like the only reason why 
Ryunosuke is, is frightened of him is because his swordsmanship is better. And so finally now, uh, there, there's this thing, like, Ryunosuke is living in this might-make-right world, right? Like Jason said, he said that the sword is the soul. He thinks of himself as superior to men precisely because he doesn't have the sort of, like, um, impurities of self that so many other men have where he lives by the sword, right? Like, and, and he thinks that makes him stronger. He doesn't think that, that Meifune is frightening because Meifune offers an alternative to his philosophy. He thinks Meifune is frightening because he's a better swordsman than, uh, Ryunosuke is. And that is the, the, um, chink in, um, uh, his armor that opens up because he starts to think, wait a minute, this guy's better than me. That might mean that his life philosophy is better than mine. Because in Ryunosuke's mind, those things are the same thing, right? Which is ironically exactly what Meifune is saying. So I don't know. That's sort of a long-winded answer because like that that's a character that I don't fully understand, I don't think, because I don't think they want us to sympathize with Meifune all the way. But I think that that there's almost a POV perspective where like Meifune is Meifune in this movie because he is representative of something that can finally make sense to Ryunosuke and like the thing that makes sense to Ryunosuke isn't a good person it's a person who's extremely good at swordsmanship because he's a good person right and like the fact that Meifune can get there through this life philosophy that beats Ryunosuke's is the frightening thing to Ryunosuke. And that's what opens him up to be destroyed is this idea that like, Oh no, like there, there is a way to get better at swordsmanship. That isn't the amorality that I have. And in fact, like I wasn't following the, the only path toward perfection and that's what scares him. Right. And there's something interesting there. I think so. I think, now, I'm not sure, in response to Aaron's question, I'm not sure how strongly I felt that it was using Mifune's character, Shimada, for the same purposes of, like, criticizing Bushido and sort of samurai code and, you know, the outdated outdated power structures, etc., in that very Kurosawa way. I'm not sure how strongly that came through, but I think it is interesting that uh, Shimada, too, has, like, an obeisance to that, to the code, right? Like, he knows that this murderous, psychopathic, uh, you know, honorless samurai is blowing through town with ill intent uh, and no like predictable moral compass. And yet he says, okay, uh, Hyoma, you are the one who must kill him. And you must use this. Like the only way you can kill him is with this one move. You have to challenge him one-on-one rather than being like, no, we have to kill. We have to like, we have to put this person away. We have to make sure he does no more damage. He's still paying a certain amount of homage to a system to that structure because he is, you know, a, a master of it or, you know, whatever his term is at the dojo where he teaches, where, where, uh, Ryunosuke first encounters him. But, you know, it's not until, it's not until the botched attack on the two palanquins by the, uh, by the Shinsengumi that Ryunosuke realizes how, just how much better he is than him. And like Harry's saying, he realizes he is achieving similar goals without this, you know, without sort of the, the nihilist view of, 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 of the, the craft and of people and you know, all that. Um, I don't know, like I said, whether or not that's an intentional thing that the movie is doing, but I really think that it creates an interesting space, especially with respect to characterizing these two opposing forces who really interesting too, in, in terms of pacing that they do not be, that, uh, Mifune doesn't become part of the movie until, you know, again, like almost halfway through maybe more. 
Hey, what's wrong with the second half of this movie? Y'all were talking. You were talking shit about the second half of this movie. I like the second half of this oh, movie was, a lot. You said it was an afterthought. Uh, we said I, the I, second I, act, which is the middle right. of the movie, not the second oh, half. Okay. I, I will still criticize the second act. I, almost everything from really? like when he's from when he moves in. Well, not to the end of the movie, but like I guess this is a pivot point. So I apologize if anybody had any thoughts around what we were saying before, but. The way that, like, almost immediately after he uh, flees the town in the in the murderous rage after having killed his opponent, uh, Bonoji, he is then, you know, then just a series of, of plot things happen that lead him, that connect him to, in just, like, really painstaking steps, connect him to Shimada and Hyoma and, you know, their fated encounter sort of thing. And then it's just, like, one thing after another is sort of delaying that. Like, he uh, is driven mad. And or sorry, his his wife uh, Hama is I don't want to say wife Hama is sort of driven mad by the constant you know living around him and you know sort of living his life, and then he is then he flees and abandons and abandons his child on the night that he's supposed to duel with with Yoma, and that extends things a little bit, and he joins the Shinsengumi, which extends things a little bit. Like that middle part, I get the feeling that it would have gone down a lot easier, maybe ironically, as a long serial than it did as 40 minutes of a two hour. Movie. I think I might be coming around to it a little bit because of how you just described it very well, Jason, which like, I really enjoy seeing him crack, right? I think it's really important that we begin to see him crack because he was so diamond like in the beginning of this, where his, his philosophy was in his own mind, perfect. And, um, nothing could ever be his fault. He blames any sort of like comeuppance that he's endured on the weakness of the woman in his life, which this movie's interest in women is very um, important, I think, and maybe also helps uh, with the second act with um, our Omatsu. Uh, but I don't disagree that there are just like a lot of plots that end up trying to be sort of put together at the end of this movie, and it doesn't super work, um, except on this sort of broad strokes interior journey that Ryanosuke is going on, where he's coming to realize that in fact, he is not empty as he thought he was. He is not just a sword. He is, in fact, uh, twisted. And th- his uh, iconic encounter with um, Tashiro Meifune's character, Turanasuke, taught him that because he saw the alternative and he begins to see inside himself, right? Instead of just seeing himself as this empty form. Um, and I think that accounts for a lot of his movements toward the end of this movie and even in the second act in a way that actually is now that I'm thinking about it starting to work for me because it it makes the ending of this movie make a little bit more sense but that being said I think I still criticize it in the sense that where this movie chooses to keep its time is questionable um we spend a lot of time with Taranaski's apprentice who is the brother of the uh of Toranosuke's, or not Toranosuke, Ryanosuke's wife's um, former husband, who becomes this sort of like faded uh, duel that Ryanosuke is looking forward to having and then comes to dread having uh, because he, he sees it as sort of like death finally coming for him, his chickens coming home to roost, karma catching up with him. Um, but this, this guy um, has like this weird relationship with Omatsu, the um, uh, young woman, and with his master and like there's just a there's a lot of stuff that's that's hard to square in any specificity when there are so many other hyper specific moments in this movie right like i keep thinking of this scene 
when uh, Ryanosuke first um, coerces um, his future wife into having sex with him in an exchange for throwing this duel, where they're in this mill. And the whole time it's happening, there there are these like hammers that are falling down to crush this rice. And there there's like a literal punctuation and percussion to the scene. As this woman, her future and her prospects are getting hammered down, the mill is literally rising and falling. And I'm like, I'm thinking about that. And I'm thinking about the scene where Tashira Mefune comes out of the palaquin and the snow is falling so oh, that we can man. see blood fall on. And it's just like, there are some scenes in this movie that are just masterful. And then there are also scenes that I can't quite square why they're even there at all. Right. And it's, it's interesting that those can coexist in the same movie, I guess. Uh, yeah, totally right. I feel I think the same way in some cases, uh, Jason, when you mentioned that, like you could see the sort of doom being better as a serial, that is like 100% something like a conclusion a possible conclusion rather that I found myself landing on tomb, uh, tomb too. uh, if not a serial, then like, I, like, it sounds like there's such a wealth of source material that this movie came from, like, Honestly, depending on what changes are made, like as much as I sure get like long movies, I could see the sort of doom being like a really excellent three hour movie um, or like this big sprawling epic just based on how much they chose mm-hmm, to like mm-hmm. bite off and chew on. Um, and I'm thinking lo- like largely about like the, the last the ramp up of the last 20 minutes is something that really worked for me um, just because I and presumably a lot of other people um maybe you folks here like the idea of a big on like ensemble everybody in in an ensemble playing a role in the finale of a big like a big movie like this is cool you know like i it's i don't know why i think of inglorious bastards first but just like the idea of every character that we had seen the previous two and a half hours like coming into play uh in some regard uh and like actually pulling more than their weight and seeing that that through line is such a good and cool thing to me. And we kind of get glimpses of it here. Um, I mean, but then you think about like Shichibe who we spend so much time on and the only thing he really ends up doing is like propositioning to uh, Hyoma Utsuki like, hey, uh, worst case scenario, I have a gun and I can just shoot this guy who has killed everybody he's talked to in his life, which is like another interesting indictment of that uh, way of life maybe um and yeah like and, and bro and- tetsuya nakadai was gun brother in yojimbo cinematic parallels exactly oh fuck it's so good I, um i yeah. uh i was gonna say i definitely thought of inglorious bastards too i think that uh specifically the way that this film kind of drives towards this this anticlimactic or it's like it's a climax right but there, there's no denouement like it doesn't it just climaxes and then ends. Um, Characters and, and, don't complete their arcs because they just never appear again. Yeah. That gun, I believe, does not ever get used. That's correct. It's, a, uh, it's Chekhov's gun that literally is not Chekhov's not gun. Uh, che- <laughs> Chekhov's uh, legendary sword thrust does not get used either. That's right, um, yeah. It, we never see the duel. The duel doesn't happen that the entire movie was spent setting up. Uh, that that reminds me. That reminded me quite a bit of the the bear Jew character from *Inglorious Bastards*, who is set up as this like this Jewish oh, yeah. like uh, uh, kind of just total badass who, who is golem. taking yeah. revenge. Yeah, taking revenge on on Nazis for what happened uh, and what is happening uh, in the in Germany at that time. And 
just literally he gets killed like randomly in the bar scene, like halfway through that scene. And just, just doesn't like that kind of anticlimactic uh, or like extremely unsatisfying uh, of violence is like absolutely something that not just Tarantino, but a lot of directors took from films like this uh, and kind of continued to use in the future. And it's kind of interesting that at least me viewing this film, it kind of seems like unintentional, even if that's the thematic point that the movie drives to like, again, part of a serialized uh, or adaptation of serialized novel. It's like interesting how these kind of things morph into something else like years down the line. Yeah. I will say, I think personally that there is a point Edness to the fact that the movie ends without much resolution, uh, but I'll let the rest of the team sort of pop up their thoughts real quick. Um, sorry, Harry, re- really quick. I think Aaron, there may have been a conflation between the bear Jew and Hugo Stiglitz, who I think uh, was the one who, died in that bar sequence Believe i think the bear does as well correct does, doesn't does, the bear, doesn't do, the bear do makes it the at the end yeah isn't he he's not de coco but he's one of the italian uh right he yeah he's one of the guys he and omar are posing as italians in the the last sort of set piece I, in the bar scene it was fastbender and stiglitz um till schwiger uh, i guess i could just use actor names who gotcha. got shot up um, okay. Hope, hopefully, I'm not wrong. Uh, tweet at us at Trial of Podcast if uh, we done goofed. We done goofed. Um, okay, so I think as we've talked about this, I've really come around on maybe the second act, and maybe just I just really love the ending to this movie. Um, I love everything that Aaron just brought up about the lack of resolutions. Um, I really love the idea that, and maybe this is the ultimate sort of indictment of, or the the redemption of the imperfection of Toshiro Meifune's character is that the, the positive quote unquote forces in this movie and the evil forces seem to be headed towards this inexorable um, collision, right? Where uh, good versus evil is going to happen. Uh, This, this aggrieved brother is going to duel this impossible to defeat swordsman and using the technique passed down to him by the only swordsman better, the Suki thrust, he is going to finally overcome and bring justice to the unjust. That would itself be a sort of redemption for the ideals of the samurai, right? And that that is terrible. In fact, that is in some ways what Ryanosuke wants, is to fight this duel and be killed, because even he would be sort of proven correct in that way, right? Because it wouldn't be that his lifestyle was evil and terrible, it would be that he was brought down by a superior swordsman. And I think that in his mind, that would be okay, to be honest. Like, I know that that might not be totally in keeping with the characterization we see, but to me, there there's some suggestion that there, the dialectics between uh, good swordsmen and evil swordsmen in this movie are sort of a false... Um, Uh, a a false opposition they're kind of the same thing they're both swordsmen right and so like the fact that the movie uh deprives us of that and instead ryunosuke's final moments are things falling apart for him completely like his whole philosophy is is uh shown to be bunk when through these sort of like awful twists of fate he comes to see the sort of um passage of his life being something that that is almost a cruel mockery where all of his victims appear before him in silhouette in shadow the thing that finally drives him over the edge is meeting this woman uh apparently by complete 
circumstance that is going to be the reward for the latest of his assassinations, Omatsu, who tells him that the first person we saw him kill was her own grandfather. This makes him have a complete psychotic break. And he starts uh, burning down this house with his sword, just slashing away at everything. This is also when the movie becomes almost magical realist, because the final scene in this movie is this horrific fight scene where literally hundreds of swordsmen attack Ryanosuke. Um I really like in in one little twist of subtlety on Wikipedia, um, it says with this re- realization, Ryanosuke appears to descend into complete insanity. He starts slashing at the shadows of the ghost that surrounds him and then begins attacking his fellow, fellow assassins who seem to number in the hundreds. I really like that point that Wikipedia makes because it points out that there's no way this is real, right? There weren't that many people in this house. Like, we've completely entered Ryanosuke's insanity at this point in the movie, and we don't leave it, right? We end this movie within his mind, within the broken mind of this broken swordsman, right? And that, to me, is a much better indictment of uh, the samurai class and a much better logical conclusion to the samurai class than even this sort of mystical um, good versus evil duel that they set up. They say, no, that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is this thing falls apart completely because it never was about anything that we thought it was. Like the sword of doom isn't that the swordsman is doomed to fall by the sword. It's that he's doomed to fall by his own sword. It's that he's going to be eaten alive by his own sort of like logical end point and like that to me is like really brilliant and also just in general like that final scene is so harrowing and so well done uh to me i i agree i think i think i'm coming back around a little bit classically during this podcast on like the fact that the second act is i still don't find it very strong filmmaking wise but in retrospect like we are constantly being like robbed of that climax the faded duel doesn't happen. The very first duel is botched. The, you know, time after time that he's brought into, uh, you know, satisfied bloodlust with these various military groups, uh, which I guess ends up becoming because it's not referred to as the Shinsengumi in the first place. And then later on is called the Shinsengumi when they're incorporated in 1863. But uh, there's no climax. It just like keeps being, it's just it continues being a crescendo. And I think the last scene there, I think that's why I, uh, like I was mentioning earlier that I think there's a point to sort of the uh, resolutionless end is perfectly married with your idea, Harry, that there's just no resolution there, that if that the resolution would be too, uh, it would be too much of a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Too much of a compromise to have that. It would right. be almost sell, selling out the, the overall, the overarching message and, and, and intent of, I think the, the story is, for this is, to c- conclude in any way would be too good for what it is. Exactly. Because it's exactly. nothing. Because it is, it's built on nothing. It is just crescendo of violence. It is uh, like, it is supporting structures that will only lead to further violence. Again, this is a real read, I think, that we're getting into, but I love that we've gotten there. Yeah. I mean, like, Ryanosuke thought of himself as superhuman, right? He thought he was superior to mankind because his uh, allegiance to the way of the sword made him pure in a way that other people weren't at the end of this movie, he discovers he was not nothing of the sort. He was just a bully and a psychopath. And, um, not to, not to go back real quick. We had been threatening this, but, um, the way that this movie treats women, uh, works with that. I think that the, the critique of samurai culture is part and parcel with the misogyny in this movie. It's suggesting like, Hey, 
Remember the, the guy who said he would live by the sword? Think about what it's probably like to be that guy's wife. Uh, and this movie does a really good and really terrible um, job of demonstrating exactly what that is uh, and how little he would care for that person and how he would blame so much on her and how few opportunities women have in this society and what they're made to become in order for their husbands or their um, lovers to become who they need to be. Um, and it's, you know, it's painful. This is a painful movie. It's, it's interesting, right? Like I give this movie a lot of credit for being so bold as to cast, uh, Ryunosuke as, um, their protagonist. Well, Aaron and I were watching it at one point. I said, um, in a more traditional movie, we would follow the brother, right? I mean, the brother is the ostensible protagonist. He would have an evil, uh, samurai kill an evil psychopath killed his brother and he meets, um, a kind master uh, who seeks to redeem himself through teaching uh, his student. And through the the studies with this master, he is able to avenge his brother. And what this movie is suggesting is that even that story is in some way redemptive of uh, samurai ideologies. And so instead, we get to see this thing where nobody gets what they want because it falls apart, because there, there is no morality undergridding that system whatsoever. It's just this. It's just violence and stabbing at shadows and uh, self-hatred made manifest into the, the killing of everything. Um, there's a really good scene where the wife uh, shouts at her husband, just kill everyone then. Why don't you? And uh, at the end of this movie, he does that, right? There's, there's a suggestion that... Um, that this is still happening somewhere that like the movie ends, but somewhere right now, Ryodosuke is still slashing through every single human being who could or ever will live because in the end, that's what this is, is it's just the killing of everything. Sort of doom is a sort of mood. Uh, that is very nearly what I thought about this movie. Does anybody else have any thought? I mean, excuse me. Any other thoughts before we head to our final segment? Excellent. Then Harry, you want to help me ring it in? I would love to, Jason. Uh, This is our final segment of the show, a sort of podcast within a podcast, if you will. Uh, And we like to call it (gasps) Cody's Cody's Yowza. Um, That was messy even on my end. I apologize. (laughs) Um, In any case, thank you, uh, as always, for that warm opening. Um, it felt appropriate this week to shine a spotlight on Tatsuya Nakadai, who we've spent a good amount of time talking about already, um, especially given how uh, much other time we've devoted to talking about guys like Toshiro Meifune and uh, Takashi Shimura in the past um, previous episodes about Akira Kurosawa movies that we've uh, alluded to in this episode. Uh, Nakadai seems to have his own corner of Japanese cinema history pretty well solidified, uh, and deservedly so from what I can tell. Um, I can't exactly bank on us having all seen the same movies of his other than maybe the ones he shared with uh, Mifune and ones directed by Kurosawa. The face of another would be in the mix as well uh, for some of us. So we'll keep our evaluation of this man to the basics as much as possible. Um, As for a name for this segment, we've got a few options. Um, Tatsuya trivia, you don't know Nakadai, Nakadai noties, um, the Nakadai guys. Uh, if this bit ends up putting y'all to sleep, um, we could call it Nakadai Baby. Um, Jesus. Wow. 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 You, could, you could end this segment right here, and that would be a complete segment. 
Ah, you guys. Uh, in any case, we'll run through some Tatsuya tidbits. Uh, we'll get to know this legend a little bit better, and we'll make it a game, obviously. Uh, I'll go point by point, get uh, input and responses from you fellas, and by the end, we'll have an idea of who does and doesn't know Nakadai. Um, with Harry's first name being in the middle alphabetically, uh, I don't know if we've ever had him go first and or last for any of these silly games we do. So this time we'll lead off each round with Harry, followed by, um, let's say, Aaron and then How Jake. How equitable of you. That's that's wonderful. Thank you, Cody. I do what I can. Um, so first up here, uh, and, you know, I'll go I'll go to each of you uh, in the case of this question. Tatsuya Nakadai had a share of childhood and teenage film heroes, um, rather heroes he had when he was a, a child and or teenager. Which of the following have not been cited as an influence on Nakadai when he was a kid? A, James Dean, B, John Wayne, or C, Marlon Brando? And again, we'll start with Harry. Ooh, man. Uh, could you give them to me one more time? Sure, sure. Uh, and again, um, we're going for the one that uh, has not been noted as an influence. Right. Nakadai. Um, a, James Dean, B, John Wayne, C, Marlon Brando. I'm trying to get timelines together in my head. Um, I'm going to go with... Uh... Marlon Brando. All right. Marlon Brando. Uh, over to Aaron. Uh, I'm going to go with the Deanster. The Deanster and Jason. Deanster. This is lining up very nicely because John Wayne is a Nazi, so I really hope it's not John Wayne. So I'm choosing John Wayne. All right. Nice little mix here. Uh, the answer here is A, James Dean. Um, from what Ooh. I could find. Damn, I'm going to again with my gut. Uh, not that I drew many comparisons to Dean, um, for being, you know, somewhat of a, a stylistic similarity, but he was never cited as, uh, oh, James Dean rather was never cited as a direct influence. Um, still a great actor though. A uh, hot take. Actually, that's decidedly not a hot take. I um, think, I think Tatsuya Nakadai is a good like case study for hot people can look really, really scary with just a slight change of expression. Like Tatsuya oh, Nakadai, yeah. objectively attractive guy, but like all he needs to do is like purse his lips a little bit and widen his eyes and he looks like like a serial killer. Bro, he's terrifying in this movie. If this movie came out today, there would be a Rhinosuke uh, fan cam of like a Nicki Minaj song in the background. <laughs> I'm going to make not, one. Do not yeah. give me ideas. <laughs> a frightening daddy indeed. Um, moving right along to number two. Uh, Nakadai's first credited appearance in a movie was in Seven Samurai. Um, he played a samurai walking kind of in the background of a shot and he appears for a total of about four seconds. How long did Akira Kurosawa spend lecturing Nakadai on how to walk correctly in the shot? Um, we'll make this one <laughs> open-ended. So the person with the response closest to the actual answer will get the point. Um, and again, that question is, how long did it take Kurosawa to teach Nakadai how to walk in Seven Samurai? Harry? What is the theatrical runtime of Seven Samurai? Is that three hours and 14 minutes? Something like that. I'm going to go with that. <sighs> okay. Three hours, 14-ish minutes. Uh, Aaron? Uh, I'm going to go one hour. One hour. And Jason? Damn it. I was going to go one hour. 59 minutes. Yeah, okay. I was hoping you'd do this. Harry's pretty much out of this. Just Jason and I for this one, I think. 59 minutes. Um, 
Not not a bad strat because uh, the figure I received from the internet is that Akira Kuros- uh, Kurosawa spent five minutes teaching Tatsuya Nagai how to walk like a proper walking <laughs> samurai. Um, bit of a list right there, you guys. I was having fun. You guys come in here with your prices right, gamifying the system. Bullshit. I would I, I would yeah. have loved to <laughs> guess zero minutes and then been on the other, but I know Jason just would have gone one second and fucked me. So true. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep. I. Bit of a misdirect there, perhaps, um, which I don't apologize for, but I could definitely see that reading like Akira Kurosawa, ever the perfectionist, spent three days teaching an extra how to watch. I was just thinking movie. of like Stanley Kubrick and how yeah. he was such a dick with his actors, and I figure if if that's brought up at all, it's something outrageous, right? So I just but it sounds like it was also, that was that's probably days. fine, right? Like uh, five five minutes is fine, probably. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. I, I would probably need at least five minutes of coaching. Um, you brought up Kubrick, and I want to mention uh, Seth watched this movie with me, a friend of the pod, Seth, and roommate Seth. Shout out uh, to Seth. And there was Seth. a specific part of the of the last scene where it's just like an absolute, like, objectively, it's a Kubrick stare, right? Like, as is memefied across the internet. And we both joked that, like, aha, it's the Kubrick stare. And then literally, that's his break with reality, and it is very much like a textbook <laughs> Kubrick stare. Oh, yeah. Um. Another quick thing, I don't think this will really be applicable to anything else we talk about in the noties, but the apparently um, Nakadai did have, he, I, I don't think Kurosawa disliked Nakadai. Nakadai did uh, have some, he was objectionable to like some of Kurosawa's like direction or, or presence on set or whatever. And so like Nakadai at age like 19 or whatever was like, I'm going to really work on my craft so that I have the ability to decline offers to be in movies from this man going forward. I'm um, going to become he, the gun brother. <laughs> yeah. And then he's going to go on to be like some of the most memorable characters in some of the most memorable movies ever made. Um, but Hey, everybody has their own journey, I guess. Um, so that's cool. Um, Pivoting to number three, which is a bit of a wild card one, um, since I think most, if not all of us, have not seen most, if not all of these next movies. Um, while filming a scene in a film directed by Akira Kurosawa, uh, shoutouts, Nakadai's beard mistakenly caught fire. On which movie set did this incident take place? Uh, a. High and Low, released in 1963. B. Kagemusha, released in 1980. Or C. Ron, released in 1985. Again, bit of a wild card here, but it's fun. Oh man, uh, Ron is a really good. Uh, my gut said Kage Musha before it was even like a uh, an option. I can't remember if he had a beard in that movie, and that's fucking me up. Uh, I can't Google it. I'm not gonna cheat. Oh, I said go. Um, oh, okay, yeah, I'll go with. Uh, wait, do you know the answer, Aaron? Is that why no, I, I don't? I don't, but I'm gonna guess Ron. So you know, regardless of what you do, I'm gonna guess it. So I was hoping you would guess another one. Now, if I was a real asshole, I would choose Ron. Well, I still have this. Stop stalling while you all Google in the background. I'll do Kage Musha. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. All right, I'm doing Ron. Let's go, Cody. Ron. All right, Jason. What was the third one? Uh, the, I'll, I'll just read all three. High and low, Kage Musha, Ron. Watch God it be high and low now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say high. I'm going to say high and low because I've never seen any of these films. Sure. Uh, very fair. Understandable. Um, the answer here is C. Ron. Fuck! Um, God damn it! There is a wow. there's a castle burning scene in yep. that movie, yes. and apparently yep. Nakadai's face Shit. was ignited while. I haven't me. seen Ron because I suck, but I've heard it's extremely good. We should watch that. A lot of that. people think it's Kurosawa's best film. A lot of people say that, which is wild to me because have they seen Seven Samurai? Yes, some good. Or Yojimbo? Or oh my god! Okay. Or anything, right? Um, 
number four here. Uh, we've got two more, including this one. Uh, so number four, Akira Kurosawa. Um, well, he's in many of these prompts, kind of out of necessity. It helps contextualize him somewhat, since most of uh, what we've seen him in has been directed by Kurosawa. Um, Nakadai, that is. Uh, we're going to stick with him a little bit longer. Nakadai and Kurosawa collaborated on a total of six films. How many of these works did not involve Toshiro Meifune? Um, this is another open-ended question, and for this one, we're accepting exact answers only. So which of these six uh, Nakadai Kurosawa collabs was Mifune not a part of? Harry? Which of these six? Or, like, the six. Oh, you want me to name all of them? No, give me a number. Oh, I'm sorry. 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 Uh, <laughs> how many so, of the six? Okay, yeah. I'm yeah, going to say, uh, let's see. So, Kage Mushin. Oh, I shouldn't speak aloud. Um, uh, four. Four of the six. Okay, perfect. Aaron? Ooh, I was, I was going to go two. Now I'm thinking maybe I should go three. Uh, I think three go, is probably the answer. Shit. I'm going to go three. All right, Jason? Based on Harry's answer, I was going to go two. So, I'm going to go two. All right. Uh, of the Kurosawa films that Tatsuya Nakadai was in, two of them did not have oh! damage. Uh, and those two are uh, Kagemusha and Ron. Um, fun yeah. fact, nice. the average runtime of those two movies is two hours and 50 minutes, um, but I've heard they're amazing, so I vow to get to them someday. You know what? I think Kurosawa gets a pass on that. Yeah, I think so. He, I think he right. invented the Rashomani. He's, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, um, that he did. Uh, I, you got a great point. Number five, uh, we've got our last uh, Tatsuya tidbit here. Um, right now, we, we've got a score of, um, well, we got a tie at the top, two, uh, two apiece for Aaron and Jason. Um, Harry can, can still get on the board here. Uh, but for our final Tatsuya tidbit, I'm going to describe a movie that he's been in, and I'm going to ask you all to put up your little Zencaster hands when you know what I'm describing, uh, at which point I'll pause and discern whether or not you have the correct movie, starting with the person who raises their hand first. Um, so get ready, and here we go. This is a movie we saw. I, be- I believe we all saw it together. We saw it at midnight. Aaron. Oh, fuck, at midnight? <laughs> why do you do this, Aaron? Why do you do Like, why do you I, raise your hand before? It's, it's, it's a really I good bit. It's a really, really good bit. know if we saw... Man? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know that we saw... I mean, I'll, I'll just name... I'll name uh, Yojimbo, but uh, we didn't see that. Okay, yeah, Yojimbo is not the answer. Aaron is out of contention. I have more, um, so I'll keep reading. Uh, the last thing I read was we saw... Uh, it some of us fell asleep. Tatsuya Nakadai, voices, Tatsuya Nakadai voices the devil in this animated film released in 1973. Harry. Is this Belladonna of Sadness? Belladonna of fucking Sadness. Yeah. Whoa, that's wild. I didn't know Tatsuya Nakadai was in Me that. Neither. Holy shit. That rules. He's so good at it. Yeah, um, he has I was, that like lilting, like playful voice. Boy, yeah. that rules. I was uh, on, sitting on pins and needles for mo- most of the episodes because I was like, hopefully none of the guys looked at this. Up yeah, in you said um, animated, least, and it was like yeah. an immediate swoop. Just there are three <sighs> movies that have played at the trial that were animated. 
Jason has fortunately fallen asleep during all of them, which actually yeah, was that wasn't at the trial, and that was at the Uptown Uptown was, Theater yeah. back in 2017, 2018. Oh my god, back when the world was old. Did we see that? It's 2017 or 2018, I think. Oh, oh my god. Um, but in any case, while we kind of uh, mull that over, um, final score here: uh, Aaron two, Jason two, Harry one. Um, close game overall. Thanks for playing, gentlemen. So, um, the only thing ahead, we Aaron. can include from this is that Harry Harry did lose this one, then right? Like Jason and I are tied, so Harry does well, have no. to take the the fact that he is the winner of Cody's known. He's out of his bio now, I believe, on Twitter. Is that the still? bio? That's been Twitter. gone for a while. I'm soon okay. Harry now. Oh, if okay. you didn't notice that, yeah. sorry, I'm not. On Twitter currently. I, not that I care if you if you notice it's, my. It seems like you profile. care. I, not that I, I, don't, care. I don't. I don't. Harry, I don't care. Harry, it's I not it. like I hear. I hear, I hear the joke. I hear the joke, and it's very good. I just want to say that it's very good. Thank you. I don't, oh. I don't care if you think it's good or not, but thanks. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I was about to say one thing that may have double dipped into what the joke Harry just made, but couldn't quite hear. Um, I was going to say it may have not. Uh, this may have not been the most fun or most educational thing, but hey, you can't knock a die for trying. I was going to make that joke also, Whoa. Cody. Uh, spectacular. This has retroactively been our best episode of Try Love. And I thank everybody for listening. This has been our episode about Sword of Doom, a 1966 film. Uh, you can go to trylon.org, find ways to support them, become a member of the Trilon Club. They've got some cool merch coming out. Um, figure out when they're going to be opening back up again after a vaccine is found for, or sorry, distributed for this virus and all that shit. Uh, but be careful when you do go out, um, wear your mask and all of that stuff. I don't mean to sound impassioned, uh, excuse me, disimpassioned. It has just been a long long year uh thank you again for listening and uh you can find our podcast at try love podcast you can find the trial on cinema at trial on cinema and you can find me jason daphnis at nintendoofus uh apologies for splitting hairs about the plot of inglorious bastards um aaron's point was ostensibly uh ostensibly correct and that is my a good point bad though my point with your correction my point doesn't make any sense anymore so don't it's, it's, jason it's edit post, please they, they, yeah. they built up they built up hugo stiglitz as his own sort of character i i think your point still makes sense um oh, thanks bud and, uh and you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh um i'm harry uh, you can find me at, on Twitter at Shitaki Harry. Tetsuya Nakadai is still alive. Uh, come on the pod. Fuck uh, yeah. Nakadai-san. Uh, we like 82 or something. You. Thank you. Yeah. He probably doesn't speak English. That's fine. Uh, we'll make it work. No, I think he, I think he does. He uh, One of the one of the things on his Wikipedia said that he want, goes to New York to watch a lot of Broadway plays and stuff. That's Broadway right. King. Like yeah, any king would, yeah. Um, All right. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thanks, uh, I'm, thanks for listening. I'm Aaron. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. Uh, stay safe out there. You can't sleep because you're intent on winning. Don't think about winning or surviving. Be prepared to die. Risk everything and you might have a chance. Go lie down with a calm mind.
Thank you.